This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Hydra We here at the Word of the Week tend to use the plural personal pronoun often when describing ourselves in these scripts, as you may have noticed. Now, while this often leads to arguments when some of us purport to love things that others of us hate, such as Disney cartoons or Christmas, and it often confuses new listeners as to how many of us are actually involved in this project, there are two of us, we do this because we firmly believe that two heads are better than one. A phrase, by the way, which goes back to sometime around 400 BCE, and was originally, two have more wit than one. But we don't want to fall down that particular rabbit hole of exploring the origin of ancient phrases, or we'll end up discussing something dull and unremarkable like gloves again. Without the two of us, this podcast you are listening to right now could never exist, because each of us only has half the requisite obsessions to make it work. One of us is an obsessive audiophile who spends ridiculous amounts of time trying to pronounce unpronounceable foreign words, often in languages that no longer exist, splicing together the best of every delivery, and then syncing it all up with audio cues so that some piece of royalty-free music you've never heard of crescendos on exactly the right syllable. The other of us absolutely cannot stop researching anything until not only the original question has been answered, but also at least 10 other tenuously related questions that came up because we couldn't stop clicking on interesting links, then sifting through all those random bits and pieces we culled together for a storyline that will link together barely a third of it, and then we happily throw away the rest of the research. And so, for better or for worse, we are we. We here at the Word of the Week. Not I, the scriptwriter, nor I, the producer and performer. We. And that is so that we both always acknowledge that two heads are better than one. Except when you're Heracles. Then it's a bit more complicated. In this case, two heads were only better than one because two heads turned out to be a lot worse than one. And if you have any knowledge of the classics, you know exactly what we're talking about this week. We're talking about a Hydra. Now, every one of our listeners probably knows exactly what a Hydra is. Yes, a Hydra is an immortal, regenerative, aquatic creature that is less than one inch long and is essentially nothing more than a stomach with some arms and represents one of the simplest forms of multicellular life on Earth and yet includes one of the most complex cellular defensive mechanisms in the animal kingdom. They are also distant cousins to Medusae. That's exactly what you were thinking of, right? Well, if you're taking a high school biology class, or your brain isn't so cobwebbed over that you barely remember your high school biology class, it might just be exactly what you were thinking of. Because Hydra, the plural is the same as the singular in this case, Hydra, along with fruit flies and frogs, represent one of the most common animals used in American biology classrooms. But if you didn't pay attention or don't remember your biology class, well, prepare for a remedial lesson. Because Hydra are extremely interesting creatures and continue to be a subject of study in the field of biology. Outwardly, Hydra are remarkably uncomplicated little creatures. They are, as we said, less than an inch long and mostly consist of an elongated sac or a tube that's only open at one end. Surrounding the hydra's single opening, its mouth, 
are a ring of tentacles. At the other end of the hydra, the foot, it has a sucker-like ring that allows it to adhere to something. And that's it. Really, it's no more complicated than that. Really no more complicated than that. Because the creature's body, the tube, the tentacles, everything, is made up of two layers of body cells with a little bit of mucus in between. It's basically just a skin on the inside, a skin on the outside, and no more biology than that. Well, almost. See, there are two biological features that make the Hydra really interesting. First, both of its layers of tissue contain large numbers of stem cells. Now, that's a phrase you've probably heard before. It's big in science. Stem cells are remarkably useful. But you may not know why. So let's explain. You know, we hope, that all living things are made up of small, self-contained biological units called cells. Each cell contains a complex mix of biological machinery that allows it to survive and also to perform a specific function. In a highly complex organism like one of our listeners, you'll find literally hundreds of different types of cells, like sebaceous gland cells, magnocellular neurosecretory cells, and photoreceptor blue-sensitive cone cells. But unless you're actually a cellular biologist, you tend to think of things like muscle cells and neurons and skin cells and eggs and sperm and that kind of thing. That's okay. The point is just that cells are highly specialized things. They have particular shapes and structures and machinery designed to do a specific function in a complex organism. But all those various cells evolved from a single template, basically. Once upon, every cell was an animal unto itself and every cell had to have all the machinery it needed to survive. But over millions of years, single-celled organisms started to group together into colonies. And when that happened, just like when people settled down and started forming civilization, specialization became possible. In fact, species and specialization come from the same root. It just means quality or unique feature. And so, over the course of several billion years, we went from being single-celled oozes to massive collections of hundreds of very specialized cells working in concert to keep each other alive. But all of the cells in your body are still based on one basic template. Essentially, every cell in your body starts off as a generic cell. And then, through the introduction of particular hormones and the tripping of genetic switches, those cells dispense with some structures, grow others, and turn into a highly specialized part for the machine that is you. Those template cells, those undifferentiated cells, are called stem cells. And the reason they are worth studying is because if we can figure out the right ways to trigger them, we can cause stem cells to turn into whatever cells we might need. We could repair damage to a person's body that they otherwise can't heal. And we could even, in theory, grow new tissues or organs or whole body parts in a vat. Which is pretty amazing. And if you have 250,000 euro, you can make a hamburger without a cow. Which is precisely what scientists at the Maastricht University in the Netherlands did in 2013. Mark Post and his team took undifferentiated cells from a cow and grew them into strips of muscle tissue, which they used to make a hamburger. The hamburger was given to a chef at Couch's Great House restaurant in Cornwall to be prepared, 
and it was served to a critic and food researcher on August 5th of 2013 during a live press conference. He pronounced the burger a little dry, with an intense taste and a perfect consistency. But we digress. Back to the Hydra, and why the Hydra has the name Hydra. See, as animals go, Hydra aren't very far from that step where a bunch of single-celled animals got together and formed a colony for mutual survival. As such, they really only have four different types of cells. Sex cells, nerves, stomach cells, and nematocytes, which we'll come back to. But they also have a heck of a lot of stem cells, so many so that they are crazily regenerative. If you cut off a part of the hydra, any part, it grows back. Moreover, if you cut the top of the hydra from the bottom of the hydra, the bottom will grow a new top, and the top will grow a new bottom. You'll end up with two hydra. And scientists have been using hydra for years to study the process by which you can trigger stem cells to differentiate and reproduce. Speaking of reproduction, hydra are also really cheap to come by because they reproduce by basically growing new hydra off the sides of their bodies. So given that they don't age, can regenerate from basically nothing, and they can grow babies off the sides of their bodies, they're basically immortal. So it's a good thing that they are tiny, immobile stomachs with stinger tentacles and not, say, huge, terrible dragons. Or we'd be in real trouble. But before we can get to the huge, terrible dragons, we have to mention something else that Hydra have that make them really special. Hydra are members of a phylum of animals known as Nidaria. That's C-N-I-D-A-R-I-A. -I -I the C is silent. And they are a part of a subphylum called Medusa Zoa. Yes, Hydra are a type of Medusa. In biology. Don't get too excited, though. Medusa just means to dominate or rule in Greek. And Medusa Zoa, or ruler animals, include Hydra and jellyfish. And the thing that connects those animals together is their nematocytes. A nematocyte is a very special type of cell. It's basically a bubble with a coiled-up filament inside, a hollow, barbed filament. And when the nematocyte is stimulated, the bubble explodes open and the filament rockets out and burrows like a drill into whatever stimulated the thing. And often, some kind of terrible toxin then flows through the hollow filament into the hapless victim. Hydra tentacles and jellyfish tentacles are loaded with those nematocytes. That's what gives them their sting. But you didn't come here to listen to us talk about fascinating cellular structures and creatures that basically amount to floating stomach blobs. We're pretty sure that when you saw the title of this episode, you wanted to hear about a polycephalic dragon. That word, by the way, is the scientific way of saying mini-headed. And it's a good thing that we have a word for it, because mythology is just loaded with polycephalic creatures, especially Greek mythology, but also Mesopotamian mythology and Hinduism. It seems like lots of mythologies and faiths subscribe to the belief that two heads are better than one, or three, or four, or lots. Heck, if you just said name a polycephalic serpent from mythology, Hydra might not be the first thing we name. We might name Shesha the Naga, or the Egyptian Hebkal, 
or any one of a half dozen Slavic dragons. Or if we'd just gotten done playing any number of video games, not least of which is the awesome Okami by Platinum Games, we might name Orochi. Or to give that particular mini-headed serpent its full name, Yamato no Orochi. The story of Orochi actually picks up a little after we left off the story of Amaterasu and Sasano in our episode about the solstice. You might recall that Amaterasu was the god of the sun and the heavens and Susano was the god of storms. And they were brother and sister. And also they had a bunch of kids. And you might also recall that Susano had so angered Amaterasu that she went and moped in a cave until the entire world was almost overrun by darkness and demons because he killed her best friend with a flayed horse at a sewing party. In the end, Susano ended up exiled from the heavens. And so Susano ends up wandering the world. One day, during his wanderings along the He River, he spies a pair of chopsticks floating in the water. He reasons that someone must live upriver, and since he has nothing else going on, he decides to pop in and visit. Unfortunately, the people who lost the chopsticks aren't in the best mood to receive visitors, because seven of their eight daughters have been devoured by an eight-headed, eight-tailed serpent. This serpent, Yamato no Orochi, whose name means Big Snake, has basically been coming by the couple's house once a year for the last seven years. And every year he eats a daughter. Susano is moved by the couple's plight and also by the beauty of their remaining daughter, Kusanada. He says he will help the couple in return for Kusanada's hand in marriage. And they accept. Susano then hatches a plan. First he turns Kusanada into a comb which he can wear in his hair. He then tells Kusanada's parents to brew a big vat of sake, to distill it eight times, and to divide it into eight troughs. He then makes them build an enclosure with eight fences, and place one of the sake troughs at each of the gates. They follow his instructions, and don't ask any questions about the comb thing, and wait for Orochi. When Orochi arrives, he sees the enclosure, and the eight troughs filled with sake, and he figures that the octagonal theme means that it's all meant for him. Each of his heads drains a trough of sake, and because of its potency, Orochi pretty much ends up flopping around drunk. And Susano then lays into him with his sword, hacking the beast apart. Except, his sword breaks. While he's cutting the drunken beast to pieces, his sword strikes something metal. Surprised, he reaches into the serpent corpse and pulls out a sword which had apparently grown inside Orochi. Recognizing the sword's great power, he named it Kusanagi no Tsurogi, and eventually he gave it to his sister Amaterasu as a way of saying, I'm sorry I lost my temper, smashed your stuff with lightning, and then killed your best friend with a flayed pony. The sword became one of the imperial treasures of Japan, and several shrines were built along the He River to commemorate the tale. It has been suggested that the legend is actually a metaphor that describes the taming of the He River with canals and ditches because it kept flooding every year and destroyed the rice fields along its shore. But let's get back to the Hydra, and not the multicellular stomach stinger. Because the story of the Hydra perfectly illustrates how sometimes two heads can be worse than one, but how two heads can also be better than one. It depends entirely on whose heads they are. The story of the Hydra is actually just a part of the story of the famous Greek hero Heracles. 
who you might know as Hercules if you're more a fan of Roman or Disney mythology. Heracles was a demigod. He was a mortal son of Zeus, the king of the gods. That didn't make him particularly special, mind you. Zeus had lots of mortal kids, because he liked to sleep around. Now, Heracles was strong. In fact, he was the strongest mortal to exist, and he was even stronger than some of the gods. He even helped the Olympian gods defeat the Titans. But Heracles had a couple of things going against him, too. First of all, he was the bastard son of Zeus, and Hera, Zeus's wife and queen of the gods, didn't really care for him. For obvious reasons. Second of all, Heracles was a good-hearted and loyal guy, sure, but he wasn't the sharpest spear in the phalanx, if you get our drift. He wasn't very bright. See, in the Greek myths, Heracles was kind of a meathead, and he represented passion and strength without wisdom. In many Greek plays, Heracles was basically the original big dumb oaf. The moose, the bull, the kubiak. If those references mean anything to you. Once, for example, he got so hot that he took out his bow and threatened to shoot down the sun if it didn't cool it. Literally. That said, Heracles did have a certain cunning when he needed it. And no story illustrates that better than The Twelve Labors of Heracles. Without going into too much backstory, Heracles' hometown of Thebes was forced to pay regular tribute to King Urginus of the Minions. He gets mad, accidentally starts a war, and then wins the war so thoroughly that the entire Minion army and King Urginus himself end up dead. Heracles' king, Creon, is thankful and allows Heracles to marry his daughter Megara. Megara and Heracles have a bunch of kids and live happily ever after. For a little while. And then Hera decides to ruin his entire life again. So she drives Heracles temporarily insane and causes the guy to murder all of his children. Then she gives him his sanity back so he can see what he did. Naturally, Heracles feels more than a little guilty, and he visits the oracle at Delphi to figure out how to atone. Hera, acting through the oracle, tells Heracles to go submit to the king of Argos and do whatever favors he asks. Hera was being doubly nasty here because Heracles was supposed to end up ruling Argos instead of serving the king. But hell hath no fury, right? Heracles goes to the king of Argos, and the king gives him twelve tasks to complete. And that's the beginning of the twelve labors of Heracles. And they're all very cool, and each one is basically screwing with a guy whose only attributes are real strong and not so smart. The first labor is to go to Nemea and kill a giant stab-proof lion. Since the monster is stab-proof, Heracles cleverly just strangles it to death. And then he skins it and wears its skin through the rest of his adventures. The third labor is to go capture a giant monster boar and to not kill it. So Heracles just picks the thing up and carries it back to the king. And since the king didn't expect him to succeed, he wasn't prepared to cope with the giant rampaging boar running around his palace and ended up hiding for several hours in a jar. The fourth labor is to capture an incredibly fast, super alert deer. The stories vary for this one, but our favorite is the one where Heracles just chases the deer until it passes out from exhaustion. The fifth one was to muck out some stables that belonged to a guy named Augeus. Apparently, he had the most oxen of anyone in the world and never once cleaned up after them. And Heracles was sent to clean up all the dung. Which he does by diverting an entire river through the stables. 
Then there were the man-eating birds that he shot with poisoned arrows. And the bull of Crete, which he captures and then rides across the Mediterranean Sea back to Greece. Then there were these horses that had gotten a taste for human flesh because their owner, King Diomedes, kept feeding them people. And Heracles tames them by feeding them King Diomedes. There's the Amazonian panty raid where Heracles talks himself into a warrior sorority house and charms the pants, well, the belt, off the Amazon queen. Look, they're all great. Read the rest yourself. But the interesting one, at least the one we're interested in today, is the second labor. That's the one that involved a giant mini-headed poisonous snake who lived in a lake called Lernia. That's right, the Lernian Hydra. Now Heracles figured that after he killed a stab-proof lion, this would be a breeze. Especially because he knows the one weakness that every snake shares with every other living thing. If you cut off its head, it loses all of its power. He just figures he has to lop off all the heads, right? Well, the twist that surprises absolutely no one these days is that whenever the Lernian Hydra lost a head, two more grew in its place. And since the Hydra possessed pretty much the deadliest poison of any creature in the world in each and every one of its fangs, that made it dangerous. And Heracles was kind of stumped. But then he realized that if two heads were better than one for the Hydra, two heads would also be better than one for Heracles. So he ran and got his nephew Iolus and handed the kid a torch. The two of them laid into the Hydra. Heracles would lop off a head, and then, before two new ones could sprout, Iolus would thrust his torch into the next stub and cauterize the wound. And after much slashing and burning, the pair finally managed to completely disarm, or dishead, the Hydra. And sure enough, without any heads left, the thing isn't a problem for anyone anymore. Incidentally, Heracles then dipped his arrows in the thing's blood. And those are the poisoned arrows he kills those birds with. And sadly... Much later on, one of those poisoned arrows kills Heracles. But that's a story for another time. Our point was just that two heads are always better than one. Unless they're attached to a giant snake monster. In any mythology. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. 